Support for the Lincoln Project podcast comes from Odoo. If you feel like you're wasting time and money with your current business software, or just want to know what you could be missing, then you need to join the millions of other users who've switched to Odoo. Odoo is the affordable, all-in-one management software with a library of fully integrated business applications that help you get more done in less time for a fraction of the price. To learn more, visit odoo.com Lincoln. That's O-D-O-O dot com slash Lincoln. Odoo, modern management made simple. Welcome back to The Lincoln Project. I'm your host, Reed Galen. Today, I'm coming to you all solo to once again answer the questions that come from you, the listeners and members of The Lincoln Project community. We take these questions from social media, emails, town halls, wherever we might find them, and we're always looking to hear more from you. So if you have a question, don't hesitate to ask. You never know, you might hear it discussed on the show. So with that, let's get into the questions. The first question is about Virginia and comes from Joan. Joan asks, the Lincoln Project has run many ads against Trumpist campaigns. Is there any chance that you would consider running pro-Democrat ads in the Virginia governor's race? An LP ad on McAuliffe's behalf might help some right-leaning independents look his way. You know, we did run a number of pro-Democrat ads in the 2020 cycle, including for President Biden and a number of U.S. Senate candidates. The Lincoln Project is already operating in the Virginia governor's race. Right now, we are making sure that Republican Glenn Youngkin is called out for what he is, which is basically a Trump in Glenn's clothing. In Northern Virginia, he wears his zip-up vest. He tries to be the reasonable businessman, sort of like a Mitt Romney. But when you hear what he says, whether or not it's on hidden camera with our friend of the show, Lauren Windsor, about abortion and how, you know, he can't really say he's pro-life or that he's pro-choice. You know, he's got a wink and nod to the pro-life people, but he can't say anything out loud for fear of upsetting independence. But once he gets into office, he'll do all these things. Whether or not it's propagating, you know, critical race theory is a real issue, whether or not it's being squishy on vaccines or masks. So we're really focused on making sure that those same voters, Joan, that you're talking about are aware of who Glenn Youngkin is. If we believe that it is a necessary and positive thing for us to say something good about Terry, which, you know, look, he's already been governor once. I think he's going to win again, but it's too close to call right now. Then that's something we'll do. All right, let's move on to a few questions about the Democrats. Tyler asks, let's imagine for a moment that Joe Manchin and Kristen Sinema were Republicans and they were holding up the Republican policy agenda in the same way that they're holding up the Democrats. What would Republican leadership get them to do to fall in line? And should the Democratic leadership consider something similar? You know, this wouldn't happen in Republican politics, probably. There's an old saying that Republicans fall in line and Democrats fall in love. And so what would be the difference is that Mitch McConnell, for all of his otherwise evil ways, is a very, very persuasive leader of the Republican conference. And so what I think he would do is probably threaten their political prospects to within an inch of their lives. He would probably lay out in very stark terms what their futures are politically within the Republican Party or lack thereof. And what I would say is that, you know, let's take Manchin, for example. He is the senator from West Virginia, the Trumpiest state in the country. He is a Democrat, blue dog Democrat, conservative Democrat, if we want to call it that. 
he is up for re-election in 2024. He could become a Republican. I don't think he survives a primary in 2024. He could stay a Democrat. I don't think he survives in 2024. So what's been most confusing to be about Manchin is that there doesn't seem to be any long-term play for this. I think that this is a guy who, whether or not in his own head or, you know, McConnell very well working on him psychologically or the media calling him the indispensable man, has convinced himself that he is the fulcrum around which President Biden's agenda is going to hinge. And I think he really likes all the attention he gets. I think he likes the attention he gets from Republican donors. I think he likes the attention he gets from Democrats pleading with him. And so would this happen in the Republican conference? It wouldn't, but it's a different psychological makeup between the two parties. I think Senator Sinema is very much the same way. She's in a different position because Arizona is a purple state. She will have, whether she likes it or not, a primary challenger from her left when she is up again for reelection. She seems to have even less idea of what it is she really wants vis-a-vis any sort of infrastructure bill or the president's agenda than Manchin does. And she seems less able to handle the attention that she once craved now that it has arrived on her doorstep. She is a cipher. She doesn't speak to the media. She doesn't speak to constituents. So I think now she has decided, well, I'm just going to hide out. And that's fine, but it also isn't really what leadership looks like. So what I would say, Tyler, is would this happen if they were Republicans? No, it would not, but they are Democrats. Ergo, here we are. All right, staying on the Democratic theme, Amy asks, would it be possible for the Democrats to rewrite Biden's Build Back Better Act to be over the course of five years instead of 10? It would cut the price tag in half to be $1.75 trillion, which is more in line with what many opponents of the bill say the total cost should be. Plus, you could then stop calling it the $3.5 trillion bill, which doesn't help Democrats at all. Passing this bill would also help bolster Democrats in tight 22 elections because they can say they delivered on what they ran on in 2020. I would say this, is that they throw these numbers in. I am not a legislative specialist. I'm not a budget specialist. I'm certainly no infrastructure specialist. So there was some way they came to this number. For some reason, legislative priorities always come in round numbers. They either end with zeros or fives. And they typically do them over 10 years so that much of it is spread out enough, one, for budgetary purposes so that you're not trying to cram all that spending into a shorter time period, but two, so that the effects of it theoretically last you know, a decade so that things can get done. People, as you said, Amy can take credit for them. And so would they cut the time period in half? No. More likely is that they'll cut the price tag in half and it'll still be over 10 years, which would also help with the annual budget allotment, I would assume. You know, anybody who's claiming $3.5 trillion is too much to spend over 10 years after all the money we've shoveled out the door since really 2001 between wars, economic bailouts, hurricanes, and tax cuts for the wealthy, they're lying. Same thing goes with the debt ceiling, right? Republicans say they're not going to raise the debt ceiling. They did a short term thing to get this to December, but now, you know, they're all opposed to this because we've got to be fiscally secure financially responsible. Listen, the the truth is, is that Republicans under Trump, and generally speaking, don't want to cut spending any more than Democrats do. They also just don't want to pay for anything. So it's sort of like having Matt Gates with his dad's black card out rampaging around Miami for the night and then saying he's not going to pay the bill. 
it's fine when you're spending other people's money. It's fine when you live in the illusory environment that Washington, D.C. is. But when it comes to real world complications, i.e., if the United States defaults on its debt, that has real world implications for individual Americans. It could be higher borrowing costs. It could be loss of the United States as the reserve currency, which means that ultimately everything is based on how the dollar is doing. And so Republicans, you know, in this regard, just continue their irresponsibility. Mitch McConnell feels like he got pushed around on this last debt ceiling thing a couple of weeks ago. Now he said he's going to be a tough guy. Listen, Mitch McConnell will be a tough guy until Goldman Sachs, J.P. Morgan, Morgan Stanley, Wells Fargo, Bank of America tell him to get his act together. And then my guess is, is that he'll straighten up and fly right because he doesn't want that on his head. All right, let's continue. Let's see. Oh, AT&T, our favorite. So there was a story in Reuters earlier this month that AT&T birthed One America News, the far-right, extremist, white nationalist, ugly news channel, by offering it basically like $20 million over five years in carriage fees, i.e. the money that is paid to television networks to be carried on a cable system, in this case, DirecTV. In court filings, the reporter John Schiffman discovered that without this money from AT&T, OAN would not be a going concern. It would have gone bankrupt. It would have disappeared into the ether. But because of this, the propaganda, misinformation, and disinformation that OAN produces and broadcasts on a daily basis has reached far further and far wider an audience because of Twitter, social media, Facebook, YouTube, whatever it is. AT&T got caught. They have had very little to say about this. They are a bad corporate actor, as I think I said in a previous episode. Full disclosure, I used to do work, consulting work for AT&T, as did most Republican and Democratic consultants around the country. And, you know, whether or not it's democracy in the context of OAN, whether or not it's democracy in the context of Georgia voting rights, Texas voting rights, Florida voting rights, whether or not it's in the context of individual rights like SB8 in Texas, AT&T has been conspicuously silent. They see politics as a purely transactional thing for them. You know, they are the biggest communications company in the world. They do not believe that they are accountable to anybody, but we should try and prove them wrong in that regard. And the way that we can do that is that we have our purchasing power. You don't have to subscribe to DirecTV. You don't have to use an AT&T phone. You know, you don't have to do a lot of the things that they want you to do. And so Wendy asks, as an AT&T subscriber, I'm wondering which cell phone provider I should be switching to. Well, let me say this, Wendy, with a big disclaimer, I am not a cell phone expert, and I'm pretty sure there are only like three choices. There's AT&T, which you want to get rid of. There's T-Mobile, and there's Verizon. They're probably all very similar in service. They probably all have the same phones, but I can tell you that if you switch your service from AT&T, you're likely to be begged and pled with to not change your service, but ultimately, I'm not sure you're going to go wrong. All right. At Iceman1922331 on Twitter asks, how low can AT&T stock go? I don't think we know yet. I think that certainly the public pressure they're getting over OAN hasn't helped. I think that there are some other issues that they're contending with as well that's providing downward pressure on their stock price. So I don't think we know yet. But I would say this is that the more Americans speak out against this sort of corporate behavior, the more Americans and AT&T customers 
leave their service, the lower the stock will go. And I guess the only thing we can hope for is that ultimately shareholders, whether or not they're pension funds or large hedge funds or whoever say, you guys got to get your act together. You know, we're in this deal to make money, not for you guys to try and be the biggest and the baddest guy on the block. So I think we'll still see. I think it's probably got some more dipping to go, but again, not a stock analyst any more than I am a cell phone picker. All right. Our next subject is the one, the only, the bloated Steve Bannon. And Jesse asks, the more I hear about the Steve Bannon shock troops strategy, the more frightening I realize the strategy is. God forbid the GOP takes back the Oval Office in 2024. Is there a way to prepare for, defend against these shock troops from, as Bannon puts it, deconstructing the administrative state? All right, guys. So this is something you've probably heard me say a lot in recent episodes and throughout the past. So Steve Bannon, remember, got his start. He was a Hollywood producer. I believe he might have even been a producer on Seinfeld for a while. A lot of people associate Steve Bannon with far-right politics, not only here in the U.S., but across the world, and Breitbart, the right-wing news outlet. Steve Bannon swung into view, was involved with Donald Trump's presidential campaign, was at the White House for a while, but has always been a, quote, self-avowed Leninist. And he's not talking about John Lennon, right? He's not talking about Strawberry Fields forever. He's talking about Vladimir Ilyich Ulyanov, the founder of the USSR, the communist state, Marxism-Leninism. And what Lenin stated was when the communists overthrew the czar in 1917 was you had to burn the administrative state to the ground, i.e. the czarist government had to be swept away and it had to be replaced by something in the communist image. And we saw what that looked like for the next 75 years. And so what Bannon is saying, and he will couch it in the context of better government, that's really trying to wash a very ugly and dangerous idea through the car wash, which is he wants the United States federal government, as it currently exists, to be torn down brick by brick and replaced by something that emanates from the depths of his imagination whatever that might be, it's not good. So when he talks about these shock troops, what he's talking about is the thousands of people that new presidential administrations are able to spread throughout the federal government, whether or not it's the Department of Homeland Security, Health and Human Services, Education, Transportation, you name it, all of them. These are political appointees. They're the people who will ultimately decide the policy direction of a department or an agency that work in conjunction with career civil servants, the bureaucracy. Bureaucracies are difficult to move. When you move a bureaucracy to the left or to the right, up or down, it is by single degrees or parts of a degree. You know, it's not making a hard left turn or a hard right turn. It's more like moving a battleship than it is moving a torpedo boat. Bannon wants all of that stuff to go away. All of the people who sit and administer federal programs, who make sure Social Security checks get cut, he wants all that stuff, basically he wants the wiring all torn out and he wants it to start over. And so to your question, Jesse, why is this so dangerous? Because what it does is it ensures that only those in power can determine for whom the government will be beneficial. And if you are out of step with the government, as we see in places like Russia or Turkey, Poland or Hungary or China, then you don't get what the government might have to offer, right? They may say, no, you don't get Social Security. They may say, no, you're not eligible for this program or that program. Or 
no, you're not even allowed to live in this city or state if you want to take it to its worst extreme. I mean, you know, the Chinese are going to do a thing where you're going to have some sort of loyalty score, and that will determine the kind of job you can have and the places you can live and who you can marry. I mean, it's a government-imposed caste system. And so I think that the imagination can run wild off of what seemingly is a bad idea from Bannon, but I think one that is actually far more odious once you really get thinking and talking about it. All right. Here's a question from Twitter from Travis Bryant. I see lots of tweeting, lots of podcasts, lots of streaming Q&A sessions. When are we going to start organizing and mobilizing actual people on the streets to stand up against autocratic takeover of our democracy? The other side is doing a much better job. Well, Travis, as we have said before, the right in the United States is much better at long-range planning, long-range action, long-range investment. That's why you see that they understood the importance of state legislative elections. That's why they understand statewide elections. That's why they gerrymander the hell out of congressional districts. That's why they go so far to elect and reelect United States senators to control the judiciary. What I would say is that the time is now. The Lincoln Project has already begun and has been working on for the last two or three months putting together the pro-democracy coalition. This coalition has to be broad. It has to include folks with the politics of AOC all the way to folks with the politics of Liz Cheney. It's got to be in Washington, D.C. It's got to be national. It's got to be state by state and community by community. We are working with lots of different groups in lots of different states to ensure that the people in those places are able to do the things that they are best at. The Lincoln Project, as you all know, we make a lot of advertisements. We do a lot of different things that are unique and innovative to American politics, but there are a lot of things we don't do well. And so we want to work with those groups who do what they do as well as they can do them, and that we can all fit into this giant jigsaw puzzle of the pro-democracy movement in this country not only now, as we're in place in Virginia, but in the next 12 months as we prepare for 2022. Because remember, guys, 2022 is the way station to 24. It will not surprise me at all if Donald Trump announces he's running for re-election next year, because that would put the spotlight back on him. But we're going to learn a lot, and we're going to do a lot in our efforts to make sure Republicans do not retake the House or the Senate at the federal level, or some key governor's mansions in places like Michigan, Pennsylvania, and Wisconsin, and Arizona. And that's the other part, too, which is we must go out and show that we have the numbers in this race. There are more people who believe that the United States is a grand experiment that is not done, that has a lot of work left to do, but is a much better vehicle for finding the equality, the equity, and the individual liberty and everyone's individual ability to find and pursue the happiness as they see it than whatever Donald Trump or Steve Bannon or any of these people who have very bad intentions might do it. So if you are interested in that, sign up with us at Twitter, sign up with us on Facebook, LincolnProject.us. We will be in many states and many races around the country, but your point is very well taken, Travis. We must get out there and we must show the forces of authoritarianism, that they do not get to control the battlefield, they do not get to control the conversation, that as Jason Isbell likes to say in his song, there must be more of them than us. All right. So another question from Twitter from Donald Trump lost and he's going to prison. How can the Democratic leadership be persuaded to invite former GOP operatives to help with messaging? You know, there's that serenity pledge, you know, God grant me the wisdom to know what I can control and, and the wisdom to know the difference. And 
the beauty of the Lincoln Project is that we don't have a party. We don't have candidates. We don't sit in legislatures. The only thing we have to offer is our services in defense of democracy. Anyone who wants our help in that regard, we are there to help them. The Democrats in Washington, D.C., whether or not it's President Biden, Speaker Pelosi, Senator Schumer, they have to govern. They have real jobs to do. Not that we don't, but they have governing jobs to do. They have things that they're responsible to, constituencies that they're responsible to, to make sure that the business of government actually gets done. What we do is say, okay, what is it that we have to do politically and typically in the context of political campaigns from a messaging and action perspective that is going to illustrate the shortcomings or the bad intentions of a Republican candidate and why in a given race the Democratic candidate is the only choice. This is not a fight about Republicans versus Democrats. This is a fight between democracy and authoritarianism or whatever the alternative is. The end of democracy is really what we should call it because if Donald Trump wins or someone like him wins in 2024, in 2026 we'll have elections, and in 2028 we'll have elections, and in 2030 we'll have elections. We'll keep having elections. The difference is they won't really matter anymore. Hungary has elections. They don't really matter. Russia just had elections. They don't really matter. Everybody can continue the fiction that we're somehow a democratic country, but American democracy as we know it will come to an end. And so I would say this is that anytime someone needs help on the messaging front, we're there to provide it. But again, just always remember that we have an incredible amount of freedom to operate and to message the way that we do because we are answerable only to you all to our supporters, to our contributors, to those who stand with us day in and day out, and to our consciences about fighting for what we believe is the right cause in this country at this moment. All right, staying with Twitter, Ryan Montaigne asks, as a college student looking to enter politics, what is the best way to advocate for the defeat of Trumpism in an environment that still pretends that the GOP is a normal, co-equal political party without sacrificing job prospects and opportunities? Well, Ryan, I would say this is that I grew up in politics. I've been in it my whole life. I didn't think that this was what I was going to do. So I would say this is that you have to start with a belief, which is, do you believe in the people you're working for and do they share values that you hold dear? If the answer is yes, politics is something you might want to pursue, whether or not that's as a candidate, whether or not that's someone who works on a campaign whether or not that's someone who wants to administer elections like a county clerk or county elections official, or if it's you want to take an interest in a particular public policy area. I would think about your career that is more focused on the public sector than the private sector in the context of what is it that you believe you are willing and able to do for the benefit of your family, your neighbors, your community, your state, whatever it might be. If it's simply about like, how can you get ahead furthest and fastest, get an MBA and go to New York. I will say this too. As you can imagine, politics is not an easy career. It is not an easy life. You spend a lot of time making little to no money in places far from home. And if you're talking about presidential politics, for some reason, the first caucus in the nation, Iowa, and the first primary in the nation, New Hampshire, are as cold as any place in the United States can be from the months of November to February when those things typically take place. But I would also say that it is an incredibly exciting career if it's one that you're interested in. It's not for everybody. Most folks, if they're going to get involved in political campaigns, do it when they're younger 
and they cycle out into something more, frankly, stable and less insane as they get older. And, and I cannot blame anybody for that. But I would really ask, what is it you want to do and what is it you want to do to contribute? And I'd say that's any young person. You guys are the future. The younger people that are listening to this, this is your country. Folks like me and my friends and the people that we work with at the Lincoln Project and you know hundreds of thousands, if not millions of other Americans are doing all we can to ensure that when you come of age, when you choose to have a full-fledged career or a family, when this country fully becomes yours in, say, 20 or 30 years, that it's still something you recognize and that you can be proud of. Don't think because you're young, you don't have stakes. The stakes are very high, maybe higher for y'all than they are for anybody else. All right, let's do one last question. We get this question a lot, and I think it's a good question. From Sir Fox, is it your long-term plan to try and recreate some better version of the GOP? Because my dudes, I'm not seeing that happening. Conservative and moderate Democrats are better old school Republicans than any current elected Republicans. Well, Sir Fox, I agree with you. There was a time before the Lincoln Project started when I would sit in salons and very fancy houses in Northwest Washington, D.C. Rick was at some of these meetings with me. And everyone there to this day are very earnest and well-intentioned people. And they said, what are we going to do about Donald Trump in 2020? And people would go around the room. Are we going to primary him? What are we going to do? We have to make him look like a loser. And the one thing that I think we understood as the Lincoln Project and still believe to our core was that you couldn't beat Donald Trump without also taking on the Republican Party. Because as of even late 2019, when we started and to this moment, two years later almost, the party and Trump are one and the same. You have seen that he said just the other day that if a candidate is not MAGA enough, not Trumpy enough in 2022 or 2024, Republicans should just stay home and not support that candidate. And I think that's the thing you have to understand is that a lot of these very conservative Republican voters dislike rhinos, right? Republicans in name only more than they dislike Democrats because they see the rhinos as traitors to the cause and they see Democrats as the known enemy or the known opponent. And so do I think that the current Republican Party is salvageable? I do not believe that it is. I think that it must suffer continual electoral defeat and policy defeat and public affairs and public relations defeats between now and probably 2028, 2030, 2032. This is not going to be a short fight, guys. It took us a long time to get here. It's going to take us a long time to get out. So do I think that there are probably earnest, quality, honorable elected officials that call themselves Republicans? I think that there are, but I think that they are a breed going extinct about as fast as the dodo did. You take someone like a Kevin McCarthy, who, when I knew him in California, was a moderate Republican trying to do his best for his conference in an overwhelmingly Democratic state. He will not be the speaker. If Republicans retake the House in 2022, it'll be someone like Jim Jordan, because everybody in that conference knows that he's not a true believer in MAGA. And as soon as Donald Trump endorses someone else, a majority of that conference is going to vote for whoever Donald Trump says to. And so I think you're right. The party that I came up in, the party that my dad worked in for nearly 50 years, the party that Stu and Rick and so many of us worked in is gone. There is no small amount of frustration at that, no small amount of anger. And you have to do a little bit of soul searching and say, what were we supporting all those years? Did we think that we were supporting good people, but underlying all that, it was a bad cause? 
That's still something that sometimes keeps me up at night. But I'll tell you this, Sir Fox, we are here now. We believe, as Abraham Lincoln said at the Cooper Union, that right makes might, and we will do everything we can day in and day out between now and whenever the fight is over to ensure that at the end of the day, American democracy stands firm, that it stands high, and that every American has the opportunities that they deserve to have under this constitutional republic. All right, gang, I want to say thank you so much for sending in your questions and to listen to me for the last 30 minutes or so. I hope that you'll continue to tune in. I hope you'll continue to tell your friends about the Lincoln Project and the Lincoln Project podcast. I cannot say thank you enough. We are up over 1 million downloads a month. That is an incredible number. I am flattered and humbled beyond words. And I just want to say thank you to all of you. And we will see you on the next episode. Thanks again to everyone for listening. Be sure to follow and subscribe to The Lincoln Project on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google, or however you listen. Don't forget to leave a five-star review. To connect with us, follow us on Twitter at Project Lincoln. And for more information on our movement, to join our mailing list, subscribe to our newsletter, or make a contribution to our efforts, visit lincolnproject.us. Also, be sure to check out our LPTV lineup, including The Breakdown with Tara Setmayer and Rick Wilson, which airs Tuesdays and Thursdays at 8 p.m. Eastern, as well as We're Speaking with Lisa Senecal and Maya May, which airs Wednesday nights at 8 p.m. Eastern. All shows you can stream live on the Lincoln Project's YouTube, Facebook, and Twitter pages. And we'd love you to join us for our newest show, Lunch with Lincoln, which airs every Friday at noon Eastern on our YouTube channel. For the Lincoln Project, I'm Reed Galen. See you on the next episode.